0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our program. The program is called OSHA 2017, Predictions for OSHA Law and Policy under the Trump administration. Uh, I think this is a a timely topic, and it is not part of our traditional OSHA 3030. We are squeezing in a 13th episode just for our loyal participants in the 3030 community uh, because of the transition that the world of OSHA law and policy faces this uh, coming month, really. Uh, I am Manish Rath here at Keller & Heckman, and I'm joined here in the Keller & Heckman studios by my by my partner, David Sarvati, here at Keller & Heckman, who is uh, one of the deans of OSHA law anywhere in the country, has been practicing for a number of decades. David Sarvati, thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Manish. Uh,
1: it's good to be here. It's uh, really going to be an interesting the next
0: couple of months. Well, that's right. It, it, it will reveal the fulmination of some storylines in OSHA law and policy that have been uh, matriculating for years or sometimes decades. David, you and I are uh, grateful to be joined today uh, by our special guest, Mark Friedman, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Mark is the Executive Director of Labor Law and Policy uh, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Hey, Mark, Mark, thank you very much for being here.
2: My pleasure. Happy to be here and looking forward to an uh, exciting and enlightening conversation.
0: Well, with that said, we've got a lot to cover, uh, a lot of things that we think are maybe jump balls during the change of administration, some of them on this slide here, and I think we should just get right into them. Uh, one of the first things I think we ought to talk about, David and Mark, is the union walk-around rights rule. This is a, this is a memorandum. Not it's, a not a, it's not, not a, rule. a rule in the rulemaking sense. It is a memorandum, internal memorandum that OSHA published by, by uh, their enforcement director Richard Fairfax, known as one, one of three memos at least that are known as the Fairfax memo. And it essentially says that when an OSHA compliance officer conducts an inspection at an employer's worksite, he or she may bring a third party, even a union representative, even a union member, a uh, union representative who's not part of a union that represents that workplace, into the workplace to uh, accompany the inspector on the
1: inspection. Monash, this is a a response, the the Fairfax letter is a response to an inquiry from organized labor, and it uh, interpreted a regulation that's been around for quite a long time. Um, OSHA has often uh, used what they call uh, third-party non-employees. Uh, People that have a particular expertise, and those of you on the phone who remember the days of ergonomics in the late 1980s and through the 1990s, OSHA often had so-called ergonomic experts with them on the inspections. So the question was, does it it have to be limited to a safety person or can uh, anybody who uh, can uh, contribute to the inspection uh, participate, and Fairfax's answer was yes, much to our surprise. Right, Mark?
2: Absolutely, and actually, I've had conversations with Richard uh, that reveal he wasn't necessarily in agreement with this, uh, <coughs> with with the letter that that, that got issued. Um, it, it was really, you know, I guess one of the abiding themes of this whole presentation is the things that can be changed, or or how things may be changed in an upcoming administration, and this is probably high on that list. Um, and David mentioned it was a request from from the unions. It was United Steelworkers who who sent the request in. They sent the request in December. The final letter got issued in February uh, of 2013, I believe. 2012, 2013.
0: Which is lightning quick.
2: Well, that's my point. Nothing happens in that building that fast. I'm convinced that the union sent over the draft response, and that that basically became the, the final letter. Um, no, but it was an inflammatory action and really got a lot of people's attention. The good news, if there is good news here, is that it's been almost unused. I say almost because we uh, we know that there was one cleaning company in Houston where they were subjected to an inspection uh, that, was, uh, that involved this letter of interpretation. But for the most part, this has not seen the action that we thought it would. It sort of sits there as a ticking time bomb.
1: Yeah, I think, Mark, that case in Houston is Significant because it involved a janitorial services company that was being organized by, uh, the, I think it was the SEIU That's at the, the time, yeah. and uh, the uh, union was uh, uh, asked OSHA to have their organizers accompany the, the inspectors. My guess is that part of the reason they asked to do that it was so that they could identify who the people were that would be employed by this company and so that they could approach those folks obviously, away from the inspection and talk about organizing.
0: Okay, so Mark and David, the short answer from this panel is because this was an internal memorandum and not subject to Administrative Procedure Act rulemaking, I, it I, is more easily changed than other things right. if the administration is inclined.
2: Right. Marge, I want to correct you on one thing. It wasn't an internal memorandum. It was a letter of interpretation that went back to the United Steelworkers in response to their request. Right. So this is a letter of interpretation, but as it, as such, it's in the category of things that are most easily undone, right, and and will not require rulemaking or any other procedure.
0: Right, that's a great point, Mark. Thank you for clarifying that.
1: Bear in mind, as a letter of interpretation, it's an official OSHA opinion on what this terminology means in the regulations, and under the general principles that we see in the courts today, if a court's presented with that question typically they defer to the agency's interpretation of its own rules.
0: Right, which gives so a it a powerful impact.
1: That's right. And it could it's very important to, for the new administration to take a look, very close look at these things and make a decision fairly quickly on
0: whether or not they're going to continue. Moving on, you know, I think that the expression public shaming or enforcement by public shaming or regulation by public shaming never existed before this existing uh, OSHA administration, the Obama OSHA administration, uh, it's a it's a coinage of Assistant Secretary David Michaels, that of OSHA. Uh, he's used it a number of case in occasions, including in an October 2014, I should have written, meeting uh, before the AIHA, but he's used it a number of times. I've sat in on meetings, one uh, with uh, VPP. I know he's made that comment, uh, one before SBA. Uh, he's made that comment as well. Uh, David, walk us through what his, his view on this concept of public shaming
1: is. Think, I think the whole idea here is that um, – Dr. Michaels thinks that by making uh, OSHA's allegations public that somehow people uh, worry about their reputation and thereby would take steps to either comply or conform to Michaels
0: and OSHA's interpretation. In, in large part, it's due to a self-image that uh, David Michaels has that OSHA is a small agency, can't cover all the territory. So if it takes one employer and shames them publicly as much as possible, that that will have a deterrent effect and all of the other star systems will fall in line, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's right.
0: Uh, that was a Darth Vader reference. By yeah, I, I got that. <laughs> uh,
1: the, the problem with it, is, of course, is that uh, these are allegations when it comes to the uh timing that uh the OSHA issues these press releases they're not final adjudications OSHA's inspections produce citations that are oftentimes overturned or rejected particularly uh by the review commission so it's not necessarily uh true a true statement that the employer violated uh OSHA's standards when the allegation is made and of course there's no way to un uh unlike the candle, as it were, if uh, when OSHA issues the press release and uh, later determines that, uh, oh, well, we should not
0: have uh, made that allegation. These press releases can be very damaging. They're they're deliberately written to uh, be extremely one-sided and not entirely fair in how they characterize employers, and it's essentially an assertion that has oftentimes no substantiation. Mark, this is a practice rather than a, pol- a
2: well, it, let, let, policy. Well, uh, it, actually, it, it's many things. Um, I think it starts with an attitude, and it's an expression of an attitude. As David mentioned, this is OSHA trying to increase their their impact and, and profile, but it also starts with an attitude that, that OSHA, in its expression through a citation, is unequivocally correct, that this is the last word that needs to be said. Uh, one of the things that's frustrated me greatly is that there is no follow-up. So after the citation, the negotiations, and the settlements, there's no final, there's no correction on the website that says, oh, and by the way, here's how the case was resolved and the importer was found to have not been liable or or, or some other mitigating uh, factor. Um, so it's a real problem there. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this has been an expression, this is driven by an attitude that, that this administration has, been particularly uh, strong in expressing.
0: So, because this is a practice and an attitude, it's clearly subject to change with the new Assistant Secretary, one would hope.
1: I yes. mean, I, I would expect and I'm hoping for
0: a much more cooperative apo- uh,
1: approach on OSHA's part going forward. And, you know, one of the things that has happened in the last eight years is injuries and illnesses have leveled off in terms of rates. We haven't really seen an improvement over the last couple of years. Uh, that suggests that maybe this approach has run its course and, and uh, any value that might be had from having a much more aggressive enforcement posture is probably not working the way they thought it should. And I think it's time for people to start talking about alternatives to that kind of approach, maybe getting back to the uh, the uh, cooperative efforts that we saw early in earlier administrations.
0: Yeah, collaboration with employers who are ultimately the ones who have to implement compliance strategies anyways.
2: Let me make one point here. There's always going to be a need for strong enforcement. Uh, However, the next administration pursues enforcement, we should never get away from it. We should always understand the value of it and that there is a need for it. Um, This administration used enforcement, I think, as a proxy for progress in improving workplace safety and wanted to demonstrate how tough they were and to try and use this as the as the evidence of, of how much progress they were making. And as David points out, and as I think we've all seen, that's not really the, the metric by which I think they should be measured.
0: So during the, the past uh, year and a half, OSHA had put forth a requirement that employers submit their injury and illness record-keeping data electronically. Uh, OSHA had commented that it would take that data and post it online. Uh, Many of us doubt that they have the resources to process that data, redact it properly, and then post it online. Uh, They claim that they are working and maybe not on schedule to to deliver that objective. Uh, But that, that really is one of the most interesting developments to talk about with respect to what's likely to change or whether it's possible that this could change. This particular rule has a number of elements to it. There's not only the electronic posting and the online publication of the data, but in the preamble there's a number of other elements that didn't make it into the standard itself. Actually, the online publication is one of them, and the other is this idea of of retaliation under Section 1904. Mark, what are your thoughts about this rule going forward?
2: Well, the rule is a final rule, um, and I think it's going to be high in the list of the next administration as something to revisit. Um, it, it will take a full rulemaking to to change what they put out. But as you point out, some of the most damaging aspects of this are actually in the commentary uh, in the preamble to these final regs. And um, that can be changed theoretically with much less uh, process than an actual rulemaking.
0: It's good news that some of the most odd uh, and, I think, uh, aggressive measures in this rule are preambulatory and thus, can be more easily reversed theoretically than something that's in the rule itself.
2: But, but let me make a point. Um, the rule basically has two components, as the, as the next slide indicates. And this is – slide eight is about the, the, the submission of reports to OSHA and OSHA's intention to publish those online. Slide nine is about the anti-retaliation provisions, which flow through this concept of uh, employers needing to have a reasonable plan in, in place. And that is actually regulatory text. So, if you're going to change that, as I think it would be good to do, um, that would require some some more process and probably something like an actual rulemaking to 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 remove that, which I think would be a good idea, or to do something so it's it's less of a trap for employers.
1: Yeah, Mark, I think one of the most curious things about this whole business of having a reasonable plan for employees to report injuries, uh, I thought OSHA. Uh, or at least the people who were pushing for this provision, really didn't understand how workers' compensation rules work in companies. Uh, Every employer I've ever uh, worked with and every uh, employer I have worked for has had a mandatory requirement to report injuries and illnesses because if you don't report them within an appropriate period of time, your workers' compensation coverage doesn't uh, catch up. So you end up with a situation where an employer might have uh, uh, a rule in place that says report all injuries to your supervisor as soon as they occur. I'm not quite sure what OSHA had in mind about a reasonable plan, except this whole idea that they wanted to get at mandatory drug testing
0: and the retaliation issue. Um, so that's an interesting point, David, because the this these two points about drug testing and incentive plans were the subject of a lawsuit by a workers' comp uh, carrier, Great American Insurance, coupled with the Associated Builders and Contractors and I believe maybe the National Association of Manufacturers. And when I look at this rule, even though those provisions were only in the preamble, nevertheless, it was a rule published subject to proper Administrative Procedures Act uh, process. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this suit for the context of our discussion today is that it is subject to change theoretically through the mechanisms of the suit. It is possible for the new administration to take the suit as the vehicle for change and say we can settle this suit and agree to change the rule. And then by court-ordered or court-approved settlement or settlement order, they would have to go back through rulemaking to change the rule. And there would be very little for anyone else to gainsay through the common process of that rule. And sue and settle is a strategy that I think is used on both sides uh, in environmental law more often, but it certainly has happened plenty in in the world of ocean law and could happen here with this rule as well.
2: But the the problem with that suit is it misses the big point. The big point here is that the word reasonable gives employers no guidance whatsoever. You cannot pick up this regulatory text, as an employer would do, and say, oh, I know what I have to do now. I know what I've met my burden. It is impossible. That's the big flaw in this regulation. The fact that they've added this stuff in the commentary that is inflammatory and that we don't like is not the problem in this regulation.
1: Monish, we got a question here about whether we think mandatory post-drug, uh, post-injury drug testing is uh, going to be revisited. One of the ways that this could uh, uh, be resolved in the court cases for OSHA simply to say we're not going to defend it anymore. We're going to with- withdraw or accede to the uh, the claims uh, of the plaintiffs. That's a prosecutorial dis- decision uh, that OSHA will have on its own to make at the appropriate time. So. Could this mandatory post-injury drug testing issue be re, uh, revisited? Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember, mandatory post-injury drug testing is the public policy in some circumstances. If you're a CDL driver and you're involved in an accident, you're going to have a drug test. The and Department of
0: Transportation easy. rules, right.
1: Exactly, right. exactly. So I think the
0: I'm Plus, 90%, David, of the employer community, the plaintiffs in this lawsuit said 90% of the employer community believes that drug and alcohol... Influence on worker safety is a negative influence. It makes things more dangerous.
1: And not and to it's mention, it's strange
0: that the agency charged with safety and health wants to prevent employers from eradicating drug and alcohol use in the workplace. Yeah,
1: not not to mention the states that are adopting marijuana uh, use laws around the country that we're finding out is also having an impact.
0: So let's move on.
1: Uh,
0: OSHA lost badly when it tried to enforce. Uh, record-keeping violations against a an employer by the name Volk's Constructors. Uh, the record-keeping entries in its log go back three, four years, well beyond the 180-day statute of limitations. The court struck it down and said, OSHA, you've got 180 days after a violation. Why are you citing this employer for things in their log for three, four years ago? OSHA said, look, these are continuing violations as long as the error persists on the log. The court disagreed and said there's nothing that could Continuing violation. It's a discrete, it's a discrete violation that occurred a long time ago. So OSHA, not uh, willing to take a court's view, uh, I think this is really like yelling at a ref after a call instead of exhibiting good sportsmanship. They went back to the rulemaking process and created a rule that basically mirrored their argument in the Volk's case, and that case has now just right. that that re- that new rule. Thank you. Has just uh, passed.
2: Yeah, well, this has been ongoing rulemaking, like other OSHA rulemakings. Uh, as as you point out, managers, what they're trying to do is is to reverse a court decision on statutory interpretation through a rulemaking. Quite frankly, that's not permitted. That's just not within the authority of OSHA to do. And certainly, you can't undo a court decision on statutory language through a rulemaking. Um, the regulation to do this was recently at the White House office that reviews regulations.
0: That and was we, OIRA?
2: Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, right. And then we literally just learned this morning that it's been released from OIRA. So that's the last step. It will be showing up in the Federal Register in sometime soon.
0: Typically within a week of being released from OIRA.
1: Agreed?
2: Something soon.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: With, as long as there aren't any changes. So what changes you- that we can see in the next administration on this? Well, let's be, get back for one point that's important to clarify for everybody from a legal perspective. This was really a very technical legal question. The terminology it used in the statute is the word "occurrence." So the uh, statute limitation says uh, OSHA has to issue the citation within 180 days of the occurrence of the violation. And the court said the word "occurrence" clearly means uh, something that happened at a fixed point in time so it rejected osha's interpretation which you know ordinarily if there's ambiguity in the sta- in the statute OSHA's interpretation is going to get deference from the court. Here, the court said there's no ambiguity, there's no opportunity for OSHA to come back and revisit the question, hence Mark's comment about not being able to reinterpret the statute after the court's made a decision.
2: I mean, basically what this boils down to is the court telling OSHA, what part of six months in the statute don't you understand?
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: OSHA's tried to make six months in the five years and the court has said, no, six months means six months. And that's where the debate lies, and that's what the regulation would, would try to undo.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't change for OSHA that they can't do it in regulation if the court said that it's clear and unambiguous. Right. As a matter of you know, right. statutory constructs. Okay.
1: Not not clear, Monish, what's going to happen if, when the rule goes final. I mean, the the Volks case, uh, the the rule could be challenged within the standard 60, 59 days of uh, being adopted, um, although this is a regulation, not a standard, so it might be a straight Administrative Procedures Act challenge.
0: So let's talk about some general enforcement trends that we've seen over the past eight years that we would expect to change with the new administration. One of them is we've seen more cases where OSHA has sought abatement uh, orders or abatement uh, charges in their citations that require abatement enterprise-wide across the company. So if a OSHA inspects one facility, they expect the employer, and they see a violation, they expect the employer to abate that alleged violation, and they, then they say you need to abate that alleged violation at all of your facilities. That's something that, although it's theoretically possible in any administration, it's something that we've seen crop up in the la- less than the last four years. Uh, corporate-wide settlement agreements was something that has been debated for a long time, uh, sometimes employers have sought those out in order to stave off having to deal with the same issue from establishment to establishment. But that's a very different creature than enterprise-wide abatement orders, uh, mainly because n- now what you've done when OSHA insists on it enterprise-wide is you've deprived the employer of due process to defend the particulars of a alleged violation at other facilities. Uh, OSHA seems uninterested uh, in that defense and is pressing forward. I think that that's probably one of those things that's likely to change as we see an administration change from more enforcement-oriented towards collaboration-oriented. David or Mark, your thoughts?
2: Well, let me just condition some expectations here. Um, We hope that the next administration takes a somewhat different view about enforcement. We don't know that for a fact yet. Um, And there are some situations where enterprise-wide enforcement might be uh appropriate and as you noted know, it, it, it dates back to you know administrations prior to this one. So it's not in itself necessarily a wrong idea, but it has been used I think in a more aggressive manner in this administration than, than perhaps is appropriate. Um, you know, I think this is going to be a case by case evaluation. Uh if there's enough control from the corporate side throughout the operations, you might be able to say this this rises to that level where the entire enterprise, wherever it exists, has to take control. In, in some other situations, you have much more localized control, and that would be a mitigating factor against some type of corporate-wide agreement.
0: Yeah,
1: I think the the thing to keep in mind is that the corporate-wide agreements that have been pursued by the current administration have been very aggressive in terms of ancillary provisions requiring third-party audits and inspections, requiring, uh, in some cases, employers to adopt certain practices and uh, uh spend money on certain activities uh also to give up the the right to ask for a warrant on an inspection and uh, finally not insignificantly to agree to a provi- uh, provision in the statute that allows OSHA to go to court and freely enforce the uh settlement agreements without having to go through the uh, normal inspection and citation process so it's it's definitely uh, uh something that uh probably needs to be revisited but like mark said It's a tool that should not be uh, taken out of the quiver uh, of the administration uh, uh, for OSHA enforcement.
2: Quite frankly, David just reminded me of something. Uh, The corporate-wide agreements were one of the tactics by which David Michaels was seeking to impose his Injury and Illness Prevention Program, the the I2P2 concept that they were promoting for some time, which they were never able to get off the ground as a regulation. Uh, But he saw these agreements as the way to impose that that broader safety program requirement on companies and that they were then under the specific instructions from OSHA on how to run a safety program.
0: Franchises and Joint Employment, this subject comes out of an uh, enforcement memorandum from the Solicitor's Office of the Department of Labor to OSHA, basically telling OSHA inspectors what evidence to look for to try and include franchisees, uh subsidiaries, uh, staffing agencies, subcontractors, et cetera, into an investigation of a single establishment. Uh, because that is a uh, essentially a memorandum on how to conduct investigations to gather evidence, uh, I think that that is not something that's easily <coughs> reversed because it comes from two different offices, but it is possible that the utility of the memo it changes from administration... Oh, I disagree. To I
2: think that thing is done that that that's out the window. Uh that was as much as we know about it. It was a draft uh guidance to the field on how to look at franchises as you point out and find joint employment relationships for the purpose of enforcement. That's probably the lowest level of process to undo. Uh and given that I'm not even sure what its actual status is right now which is to say all we ever saw was a draft. I don't know whether it was finalized. I've heard some comments that it's been used in the field. That should be something that can be revisited without too much issue. Well,
0: that's a great point, Mark. My only point was that that's not going to come from OSHA. That would have to come from a a reversal from the Office of the Solicitor of the Department Uh, of Labor.
1: It's part of the Department of Labor, so inevitably the secretary will have to weigh in on
2: that. That's
0: right, but those some of those attorneys are staffers who go from administration to administration. They
2: they will be told that this is no longer in effect. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's probably right. Okay.
2: Um, I think we should skip ahead.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. These are two more issues: SVP and the Department of Justice use of criminal enforcement.
2: I'd I'd skip the silica,
1: actually. Just because well, we just, uh, the silica litigation is something that's ongoing. I don't think we're going to have any res- resolution of that anytime soon. But uh, well, I think it's
0: important to note, and then we'll move on, yeah. that because it's subject to litigation, that is a an area of possibility where the parties can agree to settle Correct. out their differences and go back to the drawing board on those differences under a court settlement order. With that said, let's talk about some other overall expected trends that we would see from one administration to another uh here i'll go based on our experience from the last change of administration and as mark points out that that is a uh, huge jump or a uh, leap of a conclusion but, but nevertheless if you were to use history as any kind of indicia uh, i think that you can generally expect and mark you're welcome to disagree a change from an enforcement approach uh, enforcement centric approach to a collaboration approach i think you would expect to see partnerships or alliances with industry associations being put back into use more than you've seen in the past eight years. And the kinds of tools that those alliances have d- developed, like tool tips uh, or alliance agreements, might be more frequent in the next administration than in the last one. Uh,
2: well, but me, I think you're right, Let me comment right, on Martin. that for a moment because one of the problems we saw in this administration in the partnership and alliances programs was the requirements that OSHA was placing on those associations and other partners to get into these agreements. And the problem was that OSHA was telling these groups, it, it was making it harder for them to to re-up on their agreements because it was imposing new requirements such that things like, you know, you had to have some type of employee process for, for being involved in here where that wasn't feasible in a lot of these situations. Um, so they were making it harder for groups to be in these alliances, and consequently some of them just said it wasn't worth it. We we will likely see some type of revisiting of that and and a, a new version a new approach to getting people in and keeping people into these into these uh, programs.
0: Well, the prior administration's approach, I think, was employers are the ones who are on the front lines of implementing improvements in safety and health, and I think the attitude in this administration towards these alliances was, rulemaking takes too long; it's a lot of work. Let's just try and force it upon an industry association. To accept certain best practices. The attitude of this
2: administration has always been enforcement uber alles. And anything that undermines that or goes in a different direction, such as participation in an alliance giving you some type of credit against enforcement, was anathema to them. They didn't want to talk about anything that would do anything to interfere with their ability to come down hard on anybody if they wanted to.
0: I think one of the other things we ought to talk about is changes in, uh, if any, in staffing. Over the past four years, we've seen a lot of hiring at the agency uh, for its inspector staff and training them up, as well as uh, folks at other agencies. Uh, a lot of the agency's budget in, and has increased its inspector staff. Well,
2: though, Keep in mind that in 2009, under the omnibus appropriations bill, they were given specific monies to go out and hire new. Inspectors. Right. This is this is coming on the heels of the Bush administration, where the Democrats all believed that the enforcement uh, ranks had been withered, and so what you saw was a big, you know, uptick in hiring there. Uh, that funding was never as great as it was at the beginning of this administration, and we've seen the people put through the system, and now are in the field. But I, I don't expect to see that continue. I think you'll have a stable amount of people. I don't know I, I
0: think that'll level off. I think that's right. But in addition to leveling off. I think it's possible that you'll see the natural attrition actually shrink the numbers. Yeah. is a, a
1: couple of folks have asked us questions about the new subpart D walking, working surfaces and whether or not that's going to be subject to litigation or review. I suspect it will be, but frankly, we haven't heard very much from the regulated community about the impact of that or difficulties with it. If it is going to be a problem, uh, you know, the only way we can bring it up and get it on the radar is for people to talk to either us or their trade associations so that those of us that have uh, the uh, ability to talk to OSHA and to uh, the new uh, folks that are coming in to try to get them to address it um, so we know that there's a problem.
0: So if there is
1: an issue, please let us know, get back to us, and uh, we'll see what we can do.
0: This is one of those standards that affects an enormously wide array of industries. Everybody.
1: It's a general industry
0: standard and it affects everybody. And in 1926, that's right. Uh, Okay. Appointments. Any thoughts on that, David? Well,
2: you know, as we like to say, personnel is policy. And so obviously we we now have a nominee for Secretary of Labor who uh, we don't know his feelings about OSHA, but having been in the fast food environment, I'm sure he's familiar with the agency. Um, Coming down from there, there are several positions that are going to obviously influence how OSHA operates, the assistant secretary being the key one. There will be a political deputy assistant secretary who will have a, a hand in the operation of the there's, agency. There's two
0: deputies. One is political and one is career, staff. Career. Right. Right.
2: right. Uh, and then one position that I always like to highlight is the solicitor of labor who uh, has overall oversight on all uh, regulatory matters and and enforcement matters. And a lot of what we haven't liked about this administration, OSHA in particular, has had to at least been cleared by the solicitor, if not initiated by the solicitor. And uh, Patricia Smith, who's been the solicitor of labor throughout this administration, uh, has been, I think, a real thorn in employer's sides. So I'm looking forward to seeing somebody in that role that, that I think understands the the, the employment uh, landscape better than she does.
0: Yeah, and some of the litigation techniques we've seen, David, uh, in citation contests around the country, have changed dramatically under the Solicitor of Labor's office. Uh, amongst them, uh, the, the manner in which inspections are conducted in conjunction with the office of the solicitor, witnesses are interviewed in conjunction with the office of the solicitor, threats on employers for talking to their own employees yeah. uh, from the office of the solicitor, and so I think that those are those will be. Things, if they changed, those changes would be welcome. A couple of other offices that people don't often talk about are the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, an independent agency that has three commissioners and one of whom is appointed as chair by the president. Although these uh, commissioners serve a term that uh, the president can't do anything, a new president can't do anything about, they can certainly immediately change who the chair is. And I would expect that to happen pretty early.
1: Well, I'm not sure it will, Monish. There's two, only two commissioners right now. There's one vacancy. Um, certainly that would be something that you would hope uh, somebody would pay attention to, but it's going to be way down the list of things that people are, are spending time on. More important for for the regulated community is, Who ends up in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and how closely do they examine the the regulations that get proposed and submitted to OIRA for review before they're published? That's going to be a key slot. And then the Small Business Administration Chief Counsel for Advocacy is a position that is very supportive of small business. I think it's an important one. It's one of those kind of invisible ones in the uh, Washington uh, milieu, but it is definitely something that uh, people should think about.
0: That's right. When you look at the Solicitor's Office and the Review Commission, these are uh, of high impact in enforcement and in contesting citations that OSHA imposes on the employer. And when you look at OMB, OIRA, and SBA, this is in- incredibly important in the rulemaking process. Right. And uh, and I, th- I think those are often overlooked or not given enough attention. Those are some of the t- uh, conversations we wanted to have about what we expect to, uh, to change David and Mark, thank you very much. I also wanted to point out, if, if any of you don't already know about the OSHA 3030 with monash Rath, we do this every month, and we talk about specific developments of OSHA law uh, that have happened. We do this every 30 days in about 30 minutes. The next one is January 25th at 1 p.m., mark your calendars. More information about that can be found at OSHA 30 uh, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. This program, the OSHA 2017 program, will also be posted at that same website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, and it will also be loaded up as a podcast, so you can take it on the go. Uh, We are available at Twitter, if you wanted to connect to me on my Twitter handle, at RathMomish. or you can find our podcasts on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or any of your favorite podcast streaming sources, uh, as well as all of the slides and the sound are posted in a full library for the past three years. So there's over 40 OSHA 3030 episodes on our website. Uh, and you can join our LinkedIn group, the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health Group. I am really grateful to you, David Savadi, for joining us. Mark Friedman, it's a real treat to have you aboard and uh, to hear the voice of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. To me, the most important voice representing business on business and management issues in terms of labor and employment and OSHA policy. Uh, I got to say, the employer community should be extremely grateful for all the hard work and the victories you guys have done over the decades. Very kind, thank Mark. Thank you. Your thanks, you Monish. So thank you all.
2: Thank you.